Let's pray before we start. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he shows us perfectly what you're like and what's important to you. And we pray that you would help us understand that today. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, confession, maybe this is very shocking from the church leader. Once I got a speeding ticket. Well, more than once, actually. Uh, But my story today is just once. And um, I went to the police station with my driving license because you, uh, in those days, had to go to the police station. It's a long time ago. I have never do it anymore. A long time ago, I got a speeding ticket. Took it to the police station because they were going to stamp that I had points in my license. But my license was issued in Northern Ireland, which is a totally different area of the UK. And the lady at the police station looked at my um, license and said, Northern Ireland, is that in the European Union? It's a less funny question now, actually, uh, these days, isn't it? Anyway, I was like, yes, and also the United Kingdom. There's there's been a bit of trouble over that. You might have noticed over the last 25 years. And um, she said, well, I can't sort this out here. You're just going to have to turn up to court and explain to them what's happened, and they'll be able to do it there. So I got a letter saying, come to court. I just went to court in my jeans and stuff. And um, the woman said, oh, yes, you're here for this time. You just need to go into this room and stand here. So I walked into the room, stood where she told me, and I was like, oh, I am in the dock. And uh, someone said, all rise. That's not me, but that's what it looked like. Uh, Someone said, all rise, and everybody stood up, and then these three magistrates came in and sat down, and this police person stood up and said, on the 21st of March on so-and-so road, Mr. McCracken was doing 37 miles an hour. I was like, I really didn't want to cause a fuss. I'm very happy. Um, Anyway, the magistrate then gave me my points and the fine, which was the same, and then threatened to charge me costs because I'd brought the thing to court. I was like, I'm being victimized for being Northern Irish. Anyway, they didn't do it in the end. But what I did not say when found guilty of uh, breaking the speed limit, I did not say, aha, but I was not on my mobile. So, you should let me off. No, I did break the law you're accusing me of breaking, but there's another law that I didn't break. Can't we just talk about that as a distraction from the one I was actually breaking? Now, why didn't I do that? Because if there's one important thing to do, you can't distract from the fact you haven't done it by pointing to something you have done. So that's something, keeping the speed limit is important. And I don't get to say, well, it's not important that I've broken that just because I have done lots of other good things. And in this section, we finally get to Jesus talking about what was most important to him. Verse 28, that is the question he has asked. Of all the commandments, Jesus, of all the things that God says, in your opinion, what matters most? Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll remember There's a sort of structure to this bit of Mark's gospel. So uh, we have, we're all answering this question that Jesus gets asked. Who gave you authority to do this? It's the last week of Jesus' life. He's been doing some very controversial things. And some people come to him and say, who gives you authority to behave this way, to do these things you're doing? And Jesus tells two stories that sort of illustrate his authority. We looked at one of them. 
the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, you can read it yourself, where Jesus is basically saying, I am the son of God who made everything. Therefore, you should listen to me. And then we're going to see next week, as Josh shows us, Jesus quotes a bit of the Bible that shows that he is the Messiah, God's king, sent to rule everything. So that's sort of the beginning of the section and the end of the section. And then this bit in the middle is basically, if Jesus is the son of God who rules everything, what matters? What does he say is important? And last week we saw two things he says are not that important, not as important as we think they are. Uh, changing the world politically, he says, that's not as important as you think you are, uh, you think it is. And secondly, your desire to be married, that's not as important as you think it is. And now we get to, we move from people questioning Jesus about what's not important to a man coming and saying, okay, what is the most important? And Jesus is happy to take this one. We talked last week about sometimes how Jesus' answers are a little bit sort of like, oh, it doesn't really seem to answer the question. Not this time. He, if you are here today and you're interested enough in Christianity to want to know what really matters to Jesus, he's not hiding that. But I warn you, when you find out what he says is the most important thing, The foolish thing to do is to say, well, I haven't done that, but look, Jesus, I've done this other thing instead. I've broken that law that you said was most important, but look, I've done this. If this is the most important thing, we've got to listen to what he says is the most important thing. This is the first thing we see. What's most important? So overhearing this debate, one of the teachers of the law comes to ask a question. And these people, the teachers of the law, they hung around the temple all the time, debating this type of thing with each other. They were well-respected, if sort of slightly nerdy. They were like Bible nerds. So they were like, well, let's have a little sort of Bible quiz with Jesus. I've heard the things we thought really mattered don't matter that much. What is the most important commandment then, Jesus? And Jesus basically says uh, to this man, this is sort of the subtext, it's not difficult. This thing he says in verse 29 is a quote from the first part of the Bible, the book these people have had for several thousand years. So they have had time to read it. And they spent all their time reading it. This is Jesus basically saying, listen, The God whose son I am, the God who has made me the king of everything, unsurprisingly, I don't think different things matter than he does. We agree on what matters. And what does Jesus say? Verse 29. What God has always wanted, above all, is you to be in a relationship of love with him. That's what he says in verse 29. Love the Lord your God. Verse 30. And that rests on a fact. Verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there is only one God. There's one God who made everything. And that very God calls people, the people of Israel in the first part of the Bible, and everyone in the world since Jesus, to love him with everything they have. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If there are lots of gods, lots of things deserving worship, 
then you can split your affections between them. That's the way the ancient world worked. All the people who were around Israel had a sort of supermarket of gods. It was like going to the fish counter and then the bakery and then the pharmacy. It was like, oh, I need some help with my crops. I'll go to this God. I need some help with my relationships. I'll go to this God. Israel is alone in saying, listen, there's only one God, the real God, and he is your God. He's attached himself to you in his kindness. So there's no one you need to share the devotion with. And notice, heart, soul, mind, strength. Emotions. Spiritual devotion, thoughts, actions, they all belong to him. Well, of course they do, because there is only one of him. No sharing. And then there's a second commandment, verse 31. I think that's strange. Given everything in the whole world and everything about me is covered by the first commandment, all my mind and heart and soul and strength, there's nothing else left, How can there be a second commandment? That's also important. To love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever been in that situation? Maybe you've been in that situation at work. And you may be more diligent than me. But get into my head for a moment. Someone says to you, there's two things you need to do. This first one is really important. That's first. That's number one. And there's also this second thing. What do you do? I suggest that many of us do the first thing and then go home. We say, I've done the first, done number one. I don't have time for number two. And anyway, you said that was the important thing. Now, that is in practice the way a lot of people read these two commandments. Here's a potential to-do list. So um, here's my first job. Time is eternity. The job I've got to do is love the Lord your God. The person who's got to do it is me. It's in progress, and soon I will finish it. And then second is uh, now I've got to love my neighbor and myself. The person who's got to do that is me. Well, I don't have time. I'm too busy loving God. So you'll find all sorts of people saying, yes, it's true. I'm not very loving to my neighbor. I don't really come to church and love other Christians. I don't serve others. I just make selfish decisions for me and my family. But, you know, I do pray. I do have a relationship with God. And look, that's number one commandment. So, you know, good. I just can't get to number two. I'm too busy doing number one. It's not that type of thing. Not that type of numerical order. Let me try and illustrate it. Recently, some friends of mine adopted a little boy. And when they adopted him, they had to promise to the court to provide him with a certain standard of care. I was quite surprised that you actually do all of that to the court, in in their case, in one sentence. So they made one promise to give him proper standard of care and love and acceptance. He's very young now. But say later on, uh, he says, starts saying to the mummy, daddy, I do not want to go to school. I don't want an education. I don't want to do that. I don't think they get to say, oh, well, the only promise we made was to sort of look after him and care for him and make sure he's all right. So it doesn't really matter if he doesn't get an education. We didn't promise that. 
We're, we're very busy doing number one. We can't do number two. No, it's that that big promise includes the little promise. If you're going to promise to care for him and look after him, give him the home he needs, that includes in it making sure he's educated. And that's the way that these two commands work. So you have loved the Lord your God as the big overarching promise. And included in that is love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's second, first and second, because Jesus is saying, just to be clear, there's no point at all in trying to love your neighbor if you're not in relationship of love with God. That's the type of thing he's trying to get people away from. He's like, first, sort out where you are with God. That will include changing your relationships with other people. Don't just try and be good in your relationships with other people and ignore God. But if you are loving God, that will present in your life as loving your neighbor. Jesus has been teaching that in this section, actually, that the image of God, the place we actually see God, is in other people. So a committed, wholehearted, passionate, all-of-life commitment to God pours out in love for others. You get the energy to do that from loving God. It's implied, if you love God, you will love others. Obeying one will mean you obey the other. Uh, I don't know whether you, most people probably do know this, we have teams that come and serve and set up this room and play music and do kids' work and stuff like that every Sunday. And... uh, Before the service, everybody who's on a team gathers to pray and think about what's going to happen that Sunday and to pray for each other. And we were looking at one of the times this commandment is repeated in the Bible a couple of weeks ago and praying through that. And Peter Mason, who's leading us, said a really nice thing. He said, this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, it requires imagination. It requires you to look at other people And consider carefully, what would I need if I was them? And Jesus, of course, is the one who does that the best. Because he goes well beyond imagining what it would be like to be us. And became one of us. To do... And so we, as people who follow him, do our best to understand what others need and then give ourselves away for them. It's worth saying, in passing, that people just doing what Jesus says is the second most important one, just trying to do that, that's also a thing that people do. You know, I'm not into the God and spiritual stuff. I find that all a bit weird. I just try and be a nice person. He's not having any of that. In fact, I don't think Jesus believes you if you say that. Nobody always loves their neighbor as themselves. That's why they're first and second. There's no point whatsoever in doing nice things for others and living a good life, quote unquote, if it's not rooted in the real God actually being there and you relating to him. First, sort out where you stand with God. First, learn to love him, 
and that looks like loving your neighbour. It is sort of offensive, isn't it? (laughs) On the surface, it just looks like repeating two things that were in the Bible. In fact, it's Jesus taking everybody on. It's quite... Aggressive is is too strong a word. It's quite confrontational. So the person who says, my religion is just accepting that there's lots of ways to God and Christianity is just one of them. Jesus says, here everybody, there's one God. person who says, yeah, church is important to me, but I'm not like fanatical about it. You know, uh, loving God is important to me, but I'm not, you know, some sort of religious maniac. I just have it as part of my life. Jesus says, if there's one God and everything is made by him, the right response is to love him with everything you have. The person who says, yeah, I do have a private relationship with God. I am a spiritual person. I am a Christian, but that doesn't mean actually organizing my life around loving others. Jesus says, um, there's two commandments, not just one, and one follows the other directly. And to the person who says, I don't need a religion, I'm just good by myself. Jesus says, nope, there are two commandments, a first and a second, and the first one is first for a reason. Love God, then love others. So no messing around. You want to know what's most important to Jesus? That's it. Acknowledging who God is, that everything belongs to him, loving him, learning to love him from your heart, and that changing your life and how you treat people. That's what matters to Jesus today about you, about your life. Jesus wants your feelings, devotion, thoughts, actions to direct it towards the one God And for that to pour out in imaginatively thinking, what does my neighbour, the people I'm connected to, what would they want? What would I want if I were them? I think in the modern world, our basic problem with these two most important commandments is that we're like, this sounds sort of nice, but life is so cluttered with other things even to think about this. So, you know, life is full of this and that and this and that and this and that. And I'll try and work in a little bit of loving God and loving my neighbor into those things. But life just feels so sort of like I'm juggling all of these balls all the time. To make these things most important would be too messy. It would require total root and branch reform to life. Well, yes. If you're going to ask what's most important, Jesus is going to tell you what's most important. Pottering along and sort of respecting God a bit and being kind of nice to others. That is not his description. Loving God with all you have and loving other people more than you love yourself. Remember what we are saying about this section as we've gone through. We can listen to all of this and say, well, I'm not sure I agree with Jesus or I agree with that bit and not with that bit. Jesus in this section is not putting these things out here for discussion. He's established that he is the one we need to listen to. We don't accept or reject this on the basis of whether we like it or not. 
we have to decide about who's saying it. And if he is saying it, and he is who he says he is, he is right. Later on in the afternoon service today, we are going to be thanking God for a little baby uh, family that come to church. And it will be nice and we'll pray for them. I think this has all been very interesting, thinking through, uh, what are we going to pray for him, little Isaac? Will our prayers for him reflect what Jesus thinks is most important for him? That he loves God and loves his neighbour. Or is it more likely to be, we'll pray for a whole lot of other things that sort of will be clutter in his life, a good job and a nice family and a good school and a nice home, and then say, oh, and it would be nice if he could love God along with those things too. Jesus just says, you've got the wrong way round. The other things, the extra things as you see them, are more important. If you ask me what's most important, I'll tell you. Well, if that's what's important, what's not important? That's what matters, what doesn't matter? Well, the, the teacher of the law replies, look at verse 33. To love him, God, with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And notice, Jesus, verse 34, likes that answer. So whatever it is that means, that man says, Jesus likes it, says he's right. It's Burnt offerings is sort of funny thing to mention. A, a strange thing for him to say that those don't matter and Jesus will approve of that. Because these burnt offerings that the man's talking about are one of the things people have been told to do by God to express their love for him. Jesus and this man were having this discussion in the temple. And all what happened in the temple all day long, every day, was people coming in and offerings being burnt. So a strange thing to say. It's almost like you can imagine them looking at it and saying, what you said, Jesus, is more important than that. And people would have found that odd because they'd have said, no, this is one of the ways we put into practice our love for God. It's the formal way of doing that. It's a bit like in the way that having a wedding doesn't mean you love the person you get married to. It can be a wonderful formal way of expressing your love and commitment to someone. And that's what we're doing when we bring these burnt offerings. We do love God and so we bring these offerings. How can you say that's not important? Well, the teacher of the law has put his finger on something that's important about us. That when we're caught speeding, we want to say, oh yes, but I wasn't on my phone. When we're caught out not loving God and not loving our neighbor, the thing we like to do is choose some other random sign that could possibly prove we're loving God and say, oh, well, at least I'm doing that. We all do it. We choose one thing that could possibly be a sign that things are going okay between me and God and say, listen, look, I'm doing that. You're not really allowed to challenge me about whether I love God and love my neighbor because, look, I'm doing this, my burnt offering. Israel had a history of it. They're standing looking at these. Look, the fruit's falling off the tree as if it's an illustration. 
Israel had a history of it. Doing this whole burnt offering thing day after day after day in the temple without any love or passion for God who called them and totally arrogant and uncaring about their neighbours. They were no light to the nations around them. They just thought, well, we're doing the offering, so we're better than everyone else. We all do it. We choose the thing we find easy to do that could be a sign we're loving God and then say, well, it must be all okay. I don't have to listen to all this hard stuff about loving God and putting your neighbour first. I have no deep, passionate, all-consuming love for God. And that doesn't play out in the imaginative consideration of how I can love the people nearest me. But look, I'm burning a cow. It's all all right. And the scribe has, against that strong, prevailing religious culture, through actually looking at what the Bible says, he has clocked that that is just nonsense. There's people from all over the world in our church. I wonder if this is particularly a British struggle. People from other cultures, you can tell us. It seems to be a very British thing to sort of say, oh yes, my Christian life is not this radical, life-consuming, all-changing passion that controls the way I treat, treat people around me, but I do go to church. Is that a British thing? Uh, famous and not well-loved British person, Piers Morgan. I was reading an interview with him this week. Piers Morgan is a professing Roman Catholic. And this is what he said about that. Some the, the um, journalist said to him, what did you last confess? And he said, I don't go to confession, probably because it would take me too long. Okay, why does he go to church? Mm, I pray occasionally. I find it comforting that there is something to pray to. I do believe in an afterlife. I do that people believe that people who meant a lot to me are up there looking down. I do believe if I talk directly to them, they might help me. And it's been quite effective. I'm sitting here. I'm being interviewed by the Financial Times. That's a very British religion, isn't it? It's like, oh, Jesus says in the Bible, I'm supposed to passionately love God and care about my neighbor. But I don't do any of that. But really what I do is I pray to dead people. And we all play the game. Even those of us like the scribe who see it's nonsense. Why would the one God who loves you and everyone else want a burnt offering? When he could ask for your life. For love of him. And love for others. It's part of what the church asked people like me in leadership to do. To as gently as we can but as clearly as we can, call people to the life where what matters to Jesus matters to us. And sometimes I try and do that. I try and say to people, listen, this all-consuming right love for the only real God and an outpouring of that type of love to the people near you I'm not totally sure that is a feature of your life. This is what happens generally when I have that conversation. Someone will say, but I do this. I go to church. I talk about the gospel. I give money to missionaries. They choose one thing that is sometimes related to loving God and say, I do that. 
So you can't challenge me about whether I love God and my neighbor. I make my offerings. It just seems to me a little bit like your family life is more important to you than reflecting the greatness of God in the world and loving other Christians. Yes, but I'm still on a team on Sundays. I'm just wondering how not coming to church for months reflects what Jesus says is important to you. Isn't that important? Yes, but I still pray. I just want to ask you as gently as I can whether choosing where to live based on your career or school or nice area and so church becoming secondary. I'm just wondering where that means your heart is with God. Oh, we have lots of people around in our lovely, inaccessible, well-decorated house. I'm not trying to argue with you about that. I'm just trying to say I really want what Jesus says is important to be important to you. The thing, one of the things, just in case you're worried about this, no one's going to meet me for coffee soon, are they? This loving God with all your heart thing, one of the things about it is, though, is that it is personal. So the good thing about it is, I can't actually know whether you really love God, and most of your loving of your neighbor is hidden from me, too. Uh, I don't have any secret church leader CCTV drones, you know, following round to see how well you're loving your neighbors. So I don't know we have that conversation, I could easily be wrong. It happens. But I do want to say, if me or someone else gently challenges you to say, is what matters to Jesus most important to you, don't react by saying, oh, but here's the religious thing I have chosen and I do that. Be ready to say, okay, God's using other people to help me really love him, and maybe they're wrong, but they might be thinking, put something here that I need to think about. Some of our connect groups, our small groups in church, discuss the sermon every week in their group. If you're doing that in your group at the moment, I wonder whether in response to this sermon you could open yourself to that discussion. Allow others to gently say, I'm not sure what's important to Jesus is important to you. Call each other. To make what matters to Jesus matter to you. Without getting angry and pointing at the thing you do and say, but I do this. There's an irony here, of course. As there always is. When I realized when I was sitting in uh, the library preparing this sermon, that I, that day, had not spent any time reading the Bible, praying, worshipping uh, God myself and expressing my love and praise to God. I realized that, uh, ironically, as I was writing this bit of the sermon. And what was the first thing I thought? But I'm writing a sermon. It's dangerous to mention burnt offerings not mattering in the temple. Because that's what's going on all the time. In that context, I want to just mention the fact that you're here, which we are delighted about. And I don't want to take it away that anybody makes it to church. It's a great thing. I'm glad you're here. It's one way that you express love for God and your neighbor. But listen, if coming here is the one thing convincing you that you are okay to God, you don't love him. And you don't love your neighbor. You're not on board with what matters most to Jesus. And that's worth thinking about. Well, we're nearly done.
last thing, so close but so far away. I used to have lectures at university on this particular very boring subject from the guy who wrote the textbook that every university uses on this subject. So it was like I was terrified of him. You just hope he'd not notice you in the lecture because it would become clear you hadn't read his book if you were me. Uh, and I remember there was this guy, um, it's not relevant to the story that he was Canadian, but he was, just throw that in there, who um, used to put up his hand at the end of lectures when the lecturer said any questions and start his questions with things like, I really think you made an excellent point about that particular area. Or he put up his hand and say, no, I really think you got that bit really right. And everybody else was just like, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> Have you not realised the book that you are talking to him about is his book? <laughs> now, there's something like that here, isn't there? In verse 32, when this teacher of the law says to Jesus, the Son of God sent into the world to claim everything for God, well said, teacher. It's like, yes, we would expect him to get this type of thing right. I, if I was Jesus, would find that really quite rude. But it's one of the lovely things I love about Jesus. He does have this huge claim to authority, but did you notice he has no ego? He's not offended by that at all. He thinks the man is right and commends him for his answer. Having a life-transforming relationship with God is much, much more important than these other things. Getting your politics right, finding the marriage partner, doing any religious observance. So he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then, strangely, no one dared ask him any more questions. What's so shocking about that answer? That it shut everybody up? Well, I think it's because Jesus is doing the thing that Jesus always does. The teacher of the law is used to engaging in a totally different type of discussion where you get out a bit of the Bible and you chat about it as a sort of academic interest. Hmm, which do you think the most is important commandment? Oh, I think this is the most important commandment. Days and days and days and days of that. But Jesus will not have that from him or from you. He doesn't want you to be interested in him. He wants you to come into this kingdom, this place where God rules. And this guy, he's close, but he hasn't come in yet. Any reflection on those two things that matter most to Jesus should show me that I have not done those things. Even on my best days. I understand it's right that I should... There's one God and everything belongs to him. And there's a huge need for people in the world to be loved by others. But I haven't done it. I don't do it. And Jesus doesn't just want a sort of interesting discussion about these laws. Isn't it interesting that God is like that and not like this? No, Jesus does what he always does. He turns the tables right back on you. He always does that, Jesus. We say, well, this is interesting. He says, yeah, but where are you with regard to God's kingdom? 
And that was so embarrassing, I think, for this teacher of the law. And all the people standing round were like, I do not want him putting me on the spot. They were like, don't ask any more questions. There are plenty of people, I guess, here today for whom this will be a big surprise, what we've talked about today. That what God really wants is an all-consuming relationship of love rather than some sort of feeble religious offering. But there are some people, I guess, that's not surprising at all. You can see that. You can see that that must be real. If Jesus is right, he has the right to tell us these things. And of course, if God is how Jesus describes him, he wouldn't want me just sort of going to church occasionally. That's not what he's like. If you can see that, you're very, very near to being in God's kingdom. A hair's breadth away from it. But you're not there yet. You need to see you haven't done it. In a few days from this encounter, Jesus was hanging on a cross, dying. And as he died, he was taking the punishment for all the times we haven't loved God and others the way that we know we should. And while you just stand outside and say, oh, I think it probably is right that God wants us to love him, and I think that is right that God would want us to love our neighbours, you're still only close, you're not there. You come in by accepting Jesus' offer to take the consequences of your law-breaking on himself. Don't just sort of see this is what God wants. Accept the way into it. And the way we do that is simply to admit that we have broken God's law to him, to believe that Jesus has taken the punishment for us, and to confess, to speak out that we've trusted him. So what we're going to do now is take a few moments of quiet to reflect on what we've heard today. Uh, You feel free to pray quietly to yourself. And then I'll pray a prayer that you can echo into yourself to admit these things to God if you want to. Let's take a few moments of quiet. Heavenly Father, it is right that because you are one God, everything belongs to you. And I want to say sorry for not loving you as I should. I trust that Jesus died to take all the punishment for my law-breaking onto himself. And I want to come into your kingdom. Please come into my life today. And change me as I trust Jesus to be someone who loves you and loves the people around me. In Jesus' name, amen. So please do have a think. Stick up your hand now. And does anybody have anything that they'd like to ask Morris in the wake of today? Yeah, that's fine.
Just to repeat that so everybody can, can hear, there's connections between this week and last week. So if we put Jesus as Lord and Jesus is the main thing, how does that work out then as we relate to Caesar, as in give to Caesar, what, which is Caesar's? How does that work out for our lives? Yeah, so if you've still got a Bible and you want to see what I'm talking about, it's just a page before um, in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 12. I think, um, so they asked this question about should we pay this tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus gives this sort of, I said, gnomic answer. Give back to Caesar what to Caesar and to God what is God's. And the principle there is Caesar's image is on the coin, so it belongs to him. But our, God's image is in us. Talked about that a little bit today. And so all of you belongs to him. And I think what he's basically saying there is the most important thing to sort out, and this is when, what we've got to today, is you giving yourself to God. So above any political question you've got, that's the most important thing to sort out. But once you've done that, you still need to work out how you're going to relate to the state, to Caesar. And I'm not sure Jesus really unpacks that much here except to say some things belong to Caesar and you have to respect that. You have to operate within that. So Christianity is not anarchy. It's not uh, because you've got a new king, now you don't relate to the state. That's really unpacked elsewhere in the New Testament about what that means for groups of Christians. The mistake I think that Jesus is trying to stop us making is thinking that his kingdom comes through political leaders. Um, and that's, so he sort of sets one then the other. Here I'm not sure he totally unpacks what that means, except to say, and I did say this in the talk last week, in our culture a lot of Christians are quite lazy about that. So basically because the state doesn't force us to respond to it the way that these people had to, we don't even think about what does it mean to give myself to God and then relate to the state, and we should. So we should be very careful as we think about voting and political participation. But we won't make the mistake of thinking people are going to be saved that way. Is that fair enough? Yeah. 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 And so that's unpacked, isn't it, elsewhere in the New Testament to basically say your way of honouring Caesar may not be the way he wants. And that will make life very difficult for you. But that's because you've given yourself to God. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Other questions? Oh, oh Josh, behind. Yeah. Right, so we'll take Chris's yeah. first, then we'll not forget Josh. So how do we love more than just in deeds? Yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? I think basically the best um, allegory, best way of understanding our relationship with God, and it's incomplete, but it is the best one we've got, is the way we love other people. And I think most people would consider I had a dysfunctional relationship with them if I basically said to them, it doesn't matter how I feel about you, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. I would think that was dysfunctional and I think they would think that's not love. So it's, it must, as we've said, with the sort of overarching and the thing, it must include a changed life. But it can't be just that. And maybe in our church tradition, that's where we're weak. Because I think what God, Jesus is saying here is the Lord actually wants you with yourself to love him with all the implications of that. So if you've decided to love someone, that does include guiding your feelings towards them. 
it does include thinking good, right ways about them. It does include, you know, spending time in sort of relating to them, devoted to them, and it does include what you do. And I think God's basically claiming all of that. And the burnt offerings thing is basically saying, don't fob me off by saying, oh, look, there's something I'm doing. It's like, come with me on the journey of actually learning to love. It's a much nicer offer, really. I mean, if God was just saying, oh, just do the burnt offering, forget about the rest, we could see why it would be boring. But this, this is like in, inviting into something that covers all of our person. Yeah, yeah, which I guess is mind, isn't it? But yeah, yeah, it's great. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> great minds and all that. Any more? Any questions? Oh, one back there. Oh, and then there we go. Great. So, in the sense that it's ultimately all from the Old Testament, how do we... I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear it overly well. Yeah. Please tell me if I'm, I'm repeating this wrongly. In the sense that it's all-encompassing from the Old Testament, how do we sort of choose what from the Old Testament we do? You know, do we, do we accept the Ten Commandments, but we don't stone people, etc., etc., etc.? Is that it? Yeah. Um, that, that is a complicated question. Um, and Christians take various views uh, of exactly how you do that. Um, and after Easter, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Leviticus together, and we'll think about that in much more detail then. My view is basically the New Testament tells us. So if you read the New Testament, it says to us, here are things in the Old Testament that were pointing to work that Jesus has completed, and here are things that were pointing to a way to live that comes from knowing God. And Jesus tells us that these two are in that second category whereas other things are in the first category. But Christians have debated about some things, or that, which one are they in, and that's an interesting discussion, but we will not get into it now, probably. So how practically do we love each other, given the reality of how busy we all are? Yeah, um, that's a good question. If I knew the answer to that. Um, I do think the thing... The thing I'd want to say to people like us in our culture where busyness is sort of epidemic is for lots of us it's going to mean like zero basing, by which I mean saying I've allowed such a lot of things to accrue. There's no way to add loving God with my whole life into all the other things that I've chosen. So I need to step back and say which of these things can be drawn into that and which can't. And so I do think basically we, one of the reasons, one of the reasons, not, not the only reason, so don't want to be condemnatory, that we end up with this clutter and unable to love God through it is because we've accepted into our lives a whole lot of the things we don't need to accept. So that's one direction you can approach it. The other way is, I think, how much do we think about the things we have to do? So you have to look after your children. Most of us have to go to work. How can those be made Godward, so thinking carefully about what does it mean to love God and my neighbour in my work, in my family life, rather than saying, okay, I'll get the kids to bed and then I'll think about loving God. It's the other way around. So I think we have to be ready to attack it from both ways. I think in our culture, we especially need the first one, ready to say, I've I've accrued a whole lot of commitments here that will not, this will not fit around, and that will be... Radical and painful, but worthwhile.